Can you imagine a home in which children are never tempted to fight with each other? Where children would not even want to get into an argument with each other. We come into this world with a natural instinct of wanting to get our way, even if it means fighting with each other. And we notice that instinct as soon as we are born. No one has to teach kids to get into arguments with each other. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is just leave them unsupervised for just a few minutes. And if there's more than one in the room, they quickly figure out a way to get into an argument over not sharing, over wanting a toy they want. It'd be really nice if these problems were uh, issues that we grow out of when we become adults. But the reality is that as we grow into adulthood, our instincts to want to get things our way and our willingness to fight over them when we don't, those instincts don't go away, do they? If anything, they just become more complex. They become more powerful. We become more firm in what we want, and we know how to fight for it. The reality is that this lack of unity among us is one of the conspicuous effects of the curse of sin on humanity. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? after they were disobedient and rebelled against God's design for them, they began having children. And when these children, the first two children, became adults, it was very clear that Adam and Eve had passed on to their children the corrupt nature of sin. How do we know that? Because these adult children got to the point in their lives when one killed the other. Unity among human beings was one of the clear side effects of our rebellion against our maker. Or I should say, the lack of, hum of, of unity among human beings is one of the clear side effects of humanity having become rebellious against our maker. Yet the good news that God gives us is that God has determined to undo this curse of sin by bringing people together and uniting them in a covenant community. Only God can undo for us the curse of sin that causes us naturally to want to fight with each other or to withdraw from each other. Only God can give us the grace to realign our hearts to desire to love unity deep enough that we would sacrifice our preferences in order to maintain it. And the passage of Scripture that we will look at this morning will show us the, the blessings of the unity that God creates for us and calls us to live in this unity 
Psalm 133. Would you open God's word to Psalm 133? This psalm will give us the reasons why we should cherish the unity that God creates for us. Psalm 133 from verse 1 to verse 3. It's one of the short psalms in the Psalter. Here is God's word for us this morning. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. This is God's holy word. Would you join me in praying that God would help me preach this word and help us hear it? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for revealing this word to us. We thank you that you have caused your spirit to inscripturate this passage of scripture that would speak about the blessings of the unity that you create for your people. Father, would you help me preach this word? And would you help us hear it for the glory of Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The blessings of unity. This psalm was written by David. David knew a lot about the blessings of unity, not because he had much of it, but because he often lacked it. It's unclear when David wrote the psalm. John Calvin, the great reformer, thinks that perhaps David wrote this song when he became king, and not immediately when he became king, but seven years after he became king, particularly after the northern tribes of Israel finally joined together with the southern tribes of Judah, and the 12 tribes for the first time uh, were again under one king, uh, under David. Even if we do not know for certain if that was the context when the psalm was written, it is clear how it was used by the Jewish people. It is the second to last of the psalms of ascent. Uh, this collection of psalms from 120 to 134, psalms that the Jewish pilgrims would sing as they journeyed regularly to Jerusalem to unite together in worship in the city that, that God had, had uh, declared for them to be a, the city of, of peace, as this name, Jerusalem, would be called. A place and, a, and a, a gathering where God declared that sacrifices would be brought every year, where God instituted the priesthood and specific uh, decrees of how the, the sacrifices for sin and for thanksgiving would be brought to God in worship. And as pilgrims would, would journey towards the city of Jerusalem every year, they would sing these songs. And the second to last song in this collection of psalms 
would be the song that would extol, that would praise the blessing of unity among the people of God. They sang in anticipation of being together. And the message this psalm wants to communicate is a very clear and simple message. Cherish the unity of God's people. Cherish the unity of God's people. This psalm has three verses, and in it, in these verses, David makes three moves. And these moves unfold for us why you and I should cherish the blessings and the, the, of the unity of God's people. First, cherish the unity of God's people because it is good and pleasant. It is good and pleasant. Second, cherish the unity of God's people because it's a precious mark of God's people. Because it's a precious mark of God's people. And finally, in verse 3, cherish the unity of God's people because it is key to the flourishing of God's people. Because it is key to the flourishing of God's people. Let's look at each of these and the way David unfolds for us this call to cherish the unity of God's people. The first reason is because it is good and pleasant. Look at verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What is this unity that, that David describes here? It's the it's the, the unity of, of living in community. The, the word for brothers is not talking about physical brothers and sisters. Uh, though I heard this week, uh, Pastor Russ was telling us that this is the verse that his mother taught him and his brother to memorize. The first verse ever. It's a very fitting verse to memorize for brothers, especially when they're young. Um, but this verse was actually not talking about necessarily physical siblings. Uh, the, the, this verse, the people of God, even in the Old Testament, are described in this language of brothers. Because the people who are in covenant with God and with one another are supposed to be calling each other by this language that seems familial, family descriptions. We are not mere acquaintances when we are in covenant with God and with one another. We're not merely friends, and we're definitely not strangers to each other. We are family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this familial tone and category of looking at our human relationships was actually part of the Old Testament covenant as well. Friends, if if you're not a Christian, and perhaps you, somebody has invited you to be a part of, of our gathering this morning, we're so glad you're here with us. Part of the, the Christian message is to declare to you and to all that anyone who hears the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ can become part of the family of God. The way to do that is to consider what we have done against God, that we come into this world as rebels, those who have been separated from God, And yet God, in His love and mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins that we have committed, to pay for the the guilt that we have incurred, and to redeem us, to bring us forgiveness of sins, and to bring us life, so that all those who trust in Christ, turning away from their sins and trusting in His sacrificial death, would actually be brought to life 
and be adopted into God's family. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving that he is powerful to overcome death itself, our greatest enemies of all, and to break the bondage of our sin so that we truly may be brought into God's family. And this is the great news of the gospel that we make known every Sunday here. We make known through our lives together as we join in a covenant relationship with God and with one another. And in this covenant relationship, God calls everyone who hears this news. Friends, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about this gospel and how to respond by repentance and faith, we would love to talk with you at the end of the service. But realize that as people respond to this news, we now begin calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's what God makes us. He makes people who used to be strangers, unacquainted with one another. He makes us be family, to live in community with each other. This is the unity that this psalm is actually talking about. The unity of the people of God who are in covenant with God and in covenant with one another. And even the Old Testament was foreshadowing these realities that later would become powerfully uh, effective through Jesus Christ. Friends, God is not interested to save mere individuals who live their lives as lone ranger Christians. He saves a people for himself who brings them into the family of God. And the first public declaration that someone is brought into the family of God, the first public declaration of that is baptism. And then after baptism, this family of, of believers have regular meals that we have together. And that meal is called the Lord's Supper. We will celebrate the Lord willing again next Sunday morning as a meal of the covenant community that all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ are invited to this family meal together. Friends, because God is interested to build a community that actually lives like a family. This is the unity that the psalm is cherishing, is praising. Now, in the Hebrew language, the text for... The, the word for unity is actually not there. The, the Hebrew phrase literally would say, when brothers dwell together. When brothers dwell together. Of course, the idea of unity is implied. This unity is happening as people dwell in community, being near each other, being in each other's lives, as they openly live with one another in community and love. This means that those who now belong to the people of God are actually expected, are called to live in this communal life together as Christians. Friends, the unity of Christians begins as we commit to be with other believers. Unity is not merely the absence of conflict, but the absence of being distant of being withdrawn. Unity is the reality of nearness with each other, of being involved in each other's lives. Yet, let's be honest. Sometimes, when we get really close to each other, that's when conflict arises. When we get a little too close to one another, we feel like we are stepping on each other's toes. Have you heard people say when, 
when, when they're working through conflict and through some level of disagreements, they'll say something like, well, let's keep some distance between us as a way to keep the unity. In any relationships, there are certain boundaries that we need to learn how to respect, and there's certain space we do give to each other, particularly because unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean that those with whom we are supposed to be in unity with one another are exactly like us. They're different. God made them different. So we must learn how to, in unity, give each other the space we need and not assume that the other person will be exactly like us. There's something true about allowing others to be different in how they think or approach an issue. So if that's what we mean by allowing some distance or allowing some space in order to maintain unity, that is understandable because unity does not mean uniformity. And yet, there's another sense in which unity means that we don't go separately with our lives, ignoring each other or keeping others far from us. There is a closeness that we must cultivate and pursue if we are to live out what the psalm is actually encouraging us to cherish. There is a nearness that is envisioned by this picture of brothers dwelling together. Not nearness in geography, but in committing to love one another, to be in each other's lives. Friends, the opposite of unity is the impulse to live our lives without the others being involved in our lives or us without us being involved in the lives of others friends have you thought of unity as not merely the absence of conflict but think of unity as nearness and openness to live in community with others that's the picture of unity that this psalm is wanting to put before us. And notice what David says about this unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant. Well, friends, this unity that God's people ought to experience together is not merely a duty and an expectation Though it is, other parts of Scripture will speak about it as being a duty, a command, an expectation. But here in this psalm, the psalm wants to emphasize its benefits. How good, how pleasant it is. Oh, friends, unity is a valuable reality. It is a pleasant reality. God did not create us as individuals to be solo creatures running our lives on our own. Even the most of introverts of people still need others, still need to relate to other people. So when we live in a covenant community with each other, it produces a pleasant experience. Why? Because that's how God created us, to be in unity with others. Now, it is possible for the people of God to dwell together and yet to lack unity. 
It is possible to be gathering in the same walls like in this place every week and yet for there to be a lack of unity. It is possible to live with people under the same roof week in, week out, day in, day out, and still for there to be lack of unity. Because mere physical proximity does not mean that there is unity and nearness in our relationships. This verse does not say that living, that brothers living together is easy. It says it is good and pleasant, but not easy. And that's important for us to realize. It is good for us to live in unity, and it is pleasant for us to live in unity when that unity is there. But sometimes it's hard. It's difficult. And we, we have to work through things, to sort things out. I've learned from one of you uh, in the last few years about an interesting category that I, that I had to use about certain people. The sandpaper friendships. Have you heard about them? Some people are like sandpaper. They rub us the wrong way. And yet, we're called to live in unity with people who rub us the wrong way. It's hard. It's not easy. And yet the Word of God says it is good. And when we work out to those differences, it is pleasant. When we let those differences continue to fester and, and produce uh, the, the, the results it often does, it is not pleasant. It is the opposite of pleasant. Oh, friends, though, this verse wants to awaken our attention and our affections to the unity of God's people, our unity in gathering together every week should be lived out throughout the week as we are scattered through the city and as we open our lives to one another to encourage us. Do we cherish this unity enough to pay the price, to, to go through the, the, sometimes the hard things that are called for in order to maintain and cultivate this unity? So ask yourself, do you cherish the gathering together of God's people, being together? Do you cherish living the Christian life in community with other believers? Or do you prefer to go solo on your own? Do you cherish it enough that you want to protect it, that you want to cultivate it? Do you cherish it enough that you want to dwell in unity with others as opposed to going isolated or withdrawn in your own ways? When we look after one another, especially when we consider reaching out to those who are on the fringes in our community or those who are new to our community, when we are determined to pull in and not to stay out at a distance, when we are willing to work through sorting out the conflict or pursuing peace and unity, we show that we cherish the unity of God's people. Why should we cherish this unity? Because it's good and pleasant. And David gives, for the remaining of the psalm, two pictures of, of why we can hold on to the reality that this unity is good and it is pleasant. Two images in verse 2 and then verse 3. And these two images will provide us the, the other two reasons 
for why we should cherish unity. Cherish the unity of God's people because it's a precious mark of God's people. It's a precious mark. Look at verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, this is a strange imagery. As a matter of fact, both images are a little strange. Both are liquids. But how is this imagery supposed to encourage me and you to cherish unity? Well, let's look at it a little bit some more. The, the reading here is that precious oil is poured on the head. That's strange. And then it, it falls, it pours down the beard. Even more strange. But then we find out that it's, it's falling down, it's dripping, not just on any person, but on a particular person in the Old Testament. On Aaron. What's a, what's a big deal about oil being poured out on his head, falling down, dripping down on the beard, and then reaching all the way down to his collars, the collars of his robes? Well, Aaron was the first high priest that was ordained for the people of God. And this picture of pouring down oil, starting with his head, dripping on his beard, and reaching down his collar, was actually part of God's instructions of how to anoint and consecrate the priests into the office of the priesthood. This suggests that David is looking at the unity of the people of God and he says, listen, the unity among the people of God is as precious as that oil that was used the first time Aaron was installed and consecrated into the service of God as a priest for the people of God. This suggests that the unity of God's people is a unity that is peculiar, specific, conspicuous for those who are consecrated to serve God. And this psalm is saying that this precious oil of unity is now no longer limited only to the priests but to every brother and sister who dwells together in unity. This unity distinguishes those who have been set apart for God. It's as if this unity is the distinguishing mark of the people of God, those whom God has saved for himself to serve him. But there's something even more special about this image. Not only was it used for the anointing of the high priest to serve God, but this precious oil had precious fragrances to it. If in chapter 29 of Exodus we see God's instruction about the the installation of the priesthood and we see this particular uh, instruction in Exodus uh, 29, in Exodus 30 God gave instructions about the precious oil that was to be used for the consecration of the priest. It was supposed to be mixed with all kinds of spices. So many of them, and in such a degree, that this precious oil 
would be close to what we would have today as fragrances, as perfumes. Now, I just want you to imagine if, if this precious oil was not just olive oil that doesn't have any smell, but it was an oil that was filled with spices that would emanate fragrances. Imagine if just two drops of, of a fragrance, of a perfume, makes you stand out and, and gives an aroma around you wherever you walk. Can you imagine the kind of fragrance that would emanate when a whole bowl of that precious oil would be poured out on the head, dripping down on the beard, enough to touch even the clothes all the way down to the collar of their robes? The point of this picture is that this fragrance poured out would emanate, emanate a precious smell. And that's what unity does to the people of God when we dwell together in unity. It is impossible for the fragrance, for the sweet aroma of that unity not to, to have that sweet impact around you. Oh, friends, the fact that this unity of the people of God dwelling together in unity is illustrated through, precious, through image of a precious fragrance used for the anointing of the priests shows that now this blessing is for all the people of God. This blessed unity is, is not limited only to the pastors of the church. It's not limited only to the super-involved Christians. It is for every believer, for every child of God who lives in unity with other believers. Friends, do you see the unity of the people of God as a precious fragrance that marks the people of God as distinct from the rest? When you choose to cultivate this unity with the people of God, it is a precious fragrance. If you are a Christ follower, but you have not committed yourself to a, a local congregation, considering committing yourself to a local church and consider joining them as a means of, of making this public declaration that you are choosing to dwell in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even just the, the simple act of, of joining a local congregation can be the step of making this commitment to unity a public commitment. Students, especially those of you who are starting classes here, uh, we want to encourage all students, and this we encourage our own students who move away in, on campuses in other cities, that before they commit to any campus ministry or any campus club, to commit to a local church. It will make your Christian life so much different and impact you in such sweet ways if you would first and foremost commit to a local church that is near your campus. Have you considered that one practical way of pursuing unity with the people of God is committing yourself to them? And when you are committed to them in, in, in a covenant relationship, to cultivate that so that your unity would be emanating a sweet fragrance to you and to those around you. Unity is precious. It's a precious fragrance. That's why we should cherish it. Image number two, the last image that David gives us here, not only that cherishing unity because it's a precious fragrance, but cherish unity because it is key to the flourishing of God's people. 
It is key to the flourishing of God's people. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Another liquid. Why would unity be described with a dew of a particular mountain? Now, for one, just the idea that unity would be described as dew falling down in an agrarian society like ancient Israel was, to, to hear the news that you have regular dew coming down every morning was a big deal. It, it meant that the crops would be flourishing. You know what that is like these days, especially after a hot summer? To be in a season when there's no rain, no source for water, there's no hope for plants. There's no hope for grass. So dew was a, a source by which the plants of the farmers would be able to be nourished, flourishing, to be refreshed. They would keep growing because there's dew falling. But here, the dew that, that the David is describing is a dew of Hermon. What's the deal with that? Mount Hermon was the tallest mount in Israel. And particularly, it was the mountain in the northern tribes of Israel. And because of its height, it had the most abundant dew in all of Israel. So abundant that it gave the impression that it had rained through the night. And that would happen every day. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, it's like having a sprinkler system on every night. And no water bill. I mean, who would not want that kind of a community? Who would not want to live with that kind of a benefit? That's a unity among the people of God. It is like that element that causes human relationships to flourish. Have you noticed how human relationships that lack unity experience the opposite of flourishing? It causes draining and worse, hurts wounds, and sometimes just leaves people devastated. Unity among the people of God is like the dew of Hermon. It's like that regular and abundant water supply that keeps a plant's life flourishing. That's what we experience in our human relationships when there's unity. And yet this image has another detail. David says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Why that? Well, the mountains of Zion were, were tall. They were mountains, but they were not nearly as tall as Hermon. But the mountains of Zion were in Judah. So it's as if David here, they were 90 miles apart. Naturally, the dew of Hermon does not get to affect the mountains of Zion. But David is mixing the mountains here. He's mixing. He's, he's a poet. In poetry, you, you, you mix images together, and he says, it's as if I could, I could do something with a dew of Hermon to fall on the mountains of Zion. It's naturally unnatural. And yet this is what David is painting for us, an unnatural reality. Why is David combining the, the Mount of Hermon with the mountains of Zion? Because abundant water supply, like the dew of the northern mountains of Hermon, coming down on the southern mountains surrounding 
surrounding Jerusalem. David wishes that even nature would be combined, united together in providing the blessing for the people of God. He's painting a picture here between the unity of the northern tribes and the unity of the southern tribes together. When David perhaps indeed took the kingship and is after the first seven years when the northern tribes had rejected him, here is finally David saying, finally how sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. How sweet it is when these 12 tribes are one nation, one people, like a family. Sadly, though, after Solomon dies, these 10 tribes of the north separated themselves from the south and installed their own royal line, separate from David's line. So David here envisions a unity of the people of God a unity that cannot be established by natural means. Something supernatural must take place. And this is how David closes in this psalm. Yet the reality is that this unity did not last very long for the nation of Israel. Why would David wish for the dew of Hermon to fall on the mountains of Zion? Verse 3 ends with a, with a helpful explanation. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The unity of the people of God is possible. It's a possible blessing because God commands that blessing. That blessing is not something that we create. It's something that God actually creates as he commands it as he decrees it, as he makes it possible. And God commanded this blessing to be tied to the mountains of Zion. That is significant. The mountains of Zion are the mountains that surround the city of Jerusalem. And God commanded his blessing to be tied there. In other words, there is no unity among the people of God outside of what God decreed to do in the mountains of Zion. David knew that God had a special plan with that place to do something uniquely powerful for his people in that place, in the mountains of Zion. But after David united the 12 tribes of Israel together under his reign, after he established the capital city to be Jerusalem, which was surrounded by the mountains of Zion, yet David did something awful in Jerusalem. And we will get to learn the unfolding of the story when we start the sermon series on 2 Samuel in a few weeks. But here, just a a thumbnail, a sketch. David, who knew that God had a special plan for his people through what was going to happen in Jerusalem, among the mountains of Zion, David decided to take his neighbor's wife for himself. And to cover for that sin, he decided to kill his neighbor much like Abel, Cain uh, killed Abel in Genesis. 
so much so for the dwelling in unity. The man who wrote the psalm ended up not carrying it through, but went to the uttermost extreme of doing the very opposite. Because of this heinous sin that David committed against God and against his neighbor, God gave this verdict to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the sword will never depart from your house. And the second half of 2 Samuel is a story of how David forfeited the blessing of Psalm 133, even in his own household. A civil war broke out, led by a family member from within David's household, his own son. And there was never peace and unity in David's royal line from that point forward. Until centuries later, God, in his goodness and mercy, would send another king. And this king had to be both from the line of David, but also from God's own line, sent from heaven. A king who had done nothing wrong, no evil, no slander, no gossip, no selfishness, no, no sin was found in him because he was God's only begotten son who became human. He lived perfectly before God, yet he was a target of slander, injustice, violence, and eventually sentenced to be crucified in order that the peace and the unity of God's people would be reestablished once again in David's line. Now all that took place in the mountains of Zion on a hill called Calvary. There the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's why the passage in Ephesians that we read earlier in our service from Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of Jesus in this beautiful way, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments in, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. So that now all those who hear this good news of Jesus Christ can be brought in and be able to dwell together again. Friends, the unity of God's people is not something that we create. It is something that God creates as he sent his only begotten son to come on the throne of David and undo the curse that David himself has brought to his own line. God creates this unity among those who unite themselves to Christ by faith. It's not our job to create this unity. 
It's our job to steward this unity that God creates for us and to treat it as a precious fragrance and as a flourishing dew. This unity must always be tied to the precious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone is not embracing this gospel by faith, we cannot have this precious unity with them. There is a great divide and separation between those who embrace Jesus by faith and those who refuse to embrace Him by faith. But when people respond to this gospel, Jesus abolishes the hostility and brings us together in unity. Treat it as a precious fragrance. Treat it as God's gift to His people, as the dew is God's gift to us physically. Don't take it for granted. Don't disrupt it. Learn how to protect it. And this text teaches us why it's worth cherishing. May I encourage us to learn what threatens this unity and what disrupts it in our lives, in our relationships. Ask yourself, are you given to gossip? Are you given to slander? Are you given to bitterness or to false accusations, or to assuming the worst in others, or not being able to be charitable to others, not allowing others the freedom of conscience, of being different than you, of wanting always to be right or to have the last word. Perhaps it's not knowing how to work through conflict in, with others in a godly way. Uh, this fall season, later in our, in our fall, one of our Sunday school classes, we will be covering uh, the topic of learning how to deal with conflict in a biblical way. Perhaps for some of us, we, one way to cherish this unity is to brush up on and grow in the way we do handle conflict or disagreements with others. Perhaps that's, for, that's a trap for some of us. For others, perhaps what threatens this unity is not so much the presence of conflict but simply our individualism, our unwillingness to commit our lives to live in covenant with other believers, the unwillingness to be known by others, the unwillingness to open up our lives to others. We like to go solo. We like to go with our, hunker, our lives hunkered in internally towards ourselves. And that too is one of the threats that, that disrupts the unity that God is giving to us as a gift. Friends, unity is not easy, but it's good and pleasant. Cherish the unity of God's people because it is good and pleasant, because it is a precious mark of God's people, and because it's a key to flourishing, to the flourishing of God's people. So ask yourself, what are the traps that you face that hinder this unity in your life? And what is one step you can take to cherish this unity and to protect it in, in your life and in the life of the people that God has called you to live this unity with? Let's pray. Father, you're so good. You're so marvelous to work for us that which we could not do for ourselves, to undo for us the curse of sin, and particularly this one facet of the curse of sin as it disrupts our relationships with one another.
Father, we confess that even, even as Christians and being a part of, of your people, we are not protected. We are not somehow automatically saved from, from the disruptions of this disunity. Father, you know how every one of us struggles with various ways in which this unity that you have done for us and has given to us as a gift, how it's disrupted. Father, give us the grace today that we would cherish it, that we would steward it well, that we would protect it, maintain it, and cultivate it through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.